0: This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 108.
1: Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux.
0: Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 108 you're listening to. It's brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Focal Monitors, Universal Audio and Audio Technica. Great to be back with you on a uh, incredibly rainy day here in Northern California. You can't hear it, but if I guess if you turn the headphones or the uh, whatever you're listening to all the way up, you could probably hear the rain hitting the roof. but uh, let's not do that. Let's not blow anything up because uh, then I'll start talking and uh, blow up the speakers and it, it won't be good for you. So uh, let's concentrate on what is important and that is today's guest. That's Chris Montgomery. Originally from uh, Glasgow, Scotland, and a transplant to the United States, he uh, lives and works in New York City, although he will be making a transition to Los Angeles here at some point. Uh, He does a combination of all kinds of audio work, whether it's uh, live sound, studio work, location sound. Uh, He's kind of a a man of many talents. He's worked with the Lumineers and Mumford & Sons, uh, The Killers, Florence and the Machine, Ed Sheeran, Sheryl Crow, and also uh, Rachel Platten. Uh, I'm sure you have heard that fight song song at some point in your travels. Uh, I can't seem to get away from it. Every time I turn on the television, it comes on anyway. Chris has been on the road with Rachel, wrapping up tour there, and now he's uh, back, uh, speaking to us from his in-laws' house or his poten- his his future in-laws, I should say, because he's not married yet. But his fiance's parents have allowed him to uh, temporarily set up shop in Pennsylvania in their basement. So he talks to us from Pennsylvania. So yeah, Chris Montgomery coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Let's talk Nam Nam 2017. So here is the deal. Uh, I will be there once again. I love going there. I know it's a big circus in, for some people, but, uh, you know, I get a big kick out of it. It's in Anaheim, California. It's January 19th through the 22nd. I will be there throughout that time period. This time, I will not be presenting or doing any interviews from anybody's particular booth. Well, usually I'm at the Focal booth, but uh, the Focal guys are going to do something a little bit different this year. So, I will not be there, although I will be spending some time there, of course, saying hello to uh, all my friends there. Here's the deal. I will be uh, roaming the floor. I will be uh, with a bag of recording stuff in hand and a microphone, and I'm just going to be doing some interviews from the floor of Nam, capturing some uh, conversations. And uh, yeah, if you see me and you'd like to come say hi, uh, you know, just walk on up and say hello. I might look at you at first and go, do I know this person and did I forget their name? But uh, I pretty quickly I figure out that uh, there, it's usually people who are just coming to say hi. So, uh, yeah, come on over. And if you're looking for up-to-date information on what is going on at Nam, you know, of course we can head on over to uh, gearsluts.com and we can check out uh, the Nam uh, forum that is uh, at the top of the page there. If you check it out, uh, it says Winter Nam Show 2017, easy to spot right above the Community Choice nominations click on there. You'll see loads of discussions about new gear, uh, questions, and uh, yeah, lots of discussion going on there. That's it. So I'll be there, Nam, 2017, 19th through the 22nd. So uh, if you plan on coming, uh, look forward to seeing you there. So if you're a listener of the show, long-time listener, you've probably heard me mention uh, Graham Hill from Life Edited or uh, the book The Joy of Less or those two guys whose names I can never remember from uh, The Minimalists. I talk about minimalism a bit, and it's something that's growing in my life uh, as a, I guess, something that's important. I want to be clear; I'm not trying to, you know, preach to you. Ju- just kind of relaying stuff that's working for me. Uh, the idea of minimalism, I guess, minimalism means different things to different people. For me, it, it does. There's a, it, there's a kind of a rational minimalism. So I'm not trying to sell all my worldly possessions, move out to a small, tiny house in the desert. And stop buying stuff forever. Uh, the idea of minimalism for me and how it relates to pro audio is that, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's we all collect. I know all, a lot of you out there have storage spaces full of pro audio gear. Some of it uh, you haven't touched in years and you're paying, you know, monthly on these storage sheds, which, you know, that's a discussion in itself. But um, maybe you have, maybe you're like me and you're trying to uh, get rid of bags and bags of cables. I know every time somebody asks me, do you have a DB25 to, you know, whatever kind of cable, XLR, quarter inch, you know, TRS. Somehow I can, I can produce one, even though I've gone through all the boxes that I, I've owned and uh, in my storage shed that I have here at my house. And uh, somehow it, I always miraculously come up with one. And I, you know, I have bags of like computer cables, you know, how many USB cables does one really need? And I know it's fun to be able to be in that position of the solution person, you know, the person that, you know, a friend asks or a colleague asks, hey, you know, do you have such and such a cable? Well, as a matter of fact, yes, I do. I've got 25 of them in a bag in a storage container. Uh, Let me help you with that. I'm looking to not be in that position anymore. I'm looking to rid myself of all that excess that I see maybe once a year, maybe tw- maybe once every two years. And, you know, there's certain things I use every day. It's like, you know, the headphones I, you know, the Audio-Technica headphones and the Audio-Technica mic, I use those all the time because I use them on the show. I've got, you know, gear in front of me that I use all the time. So obviously those things I'm going to continue to hold on to and take care of. Uh, it's the stuff that's sitting around. It's like, you know if I'm not really going to be utilizing certain pieces of gear, and I'm not going to be renting it out, somebody else should get some use out of it. Consider this. You can always place your stuff at a studio. You know, maybe you have a console that you're not using that you haven't used in years, but you don't want to get rid of it. And you think somebody else could get some use out of it, but you're not ready to part with it. So consider placing it at a studio in your local area and maybe cutting a deal with that studio. Maybe it's a boatload of microphones. You know, I came across a a ton of power cables, IEC power cables. What am I doing with all these? So I just, I gave them away to uh, Ryan over at Sharkbite several years ago when I kind of started getting into this. So, you know, the idea is, is to really uh, pare it down to what you use, getting the clutter out of your life, You don't have to worry about storing the stuff, insuring the stuff, in general, worrying about the stuff. And that also applies to the home, of course, where you live, you know, cleaning out your closet of excess clothing. That's something that I've recently done. So it's, I think it's a cool thing and it's working for me. And once again, never preaching, never telling you that's the only way to do it. There, of course, you know, everybody needs their their own ways of doing things. And I certainly respect that. So just want to, emphasize that this minimalism thing is out there. And if you're, uh, stressing out from all the crap in your life, consider it. It's a, it's an interesting approach to a problem that, uh, I, that I think is a problem because as a society, I think that, uh, we get so wrapped up in our stuff and, uh, it's, you know, it's fine to have products and stuff. I think that work for you and that you utilize and you make stuff with whether you're making music or you're mixing or whatever, But it's all that excess stuff around the edges that we don't really use that uh, we hold on to for some strange reason. So, uh, yeah, that's my spiel. Let's get to it. (laughs) I think I've been talking now for a few minutes, and I think we need to uh, move on to our guests. So let's get into it here with Chris Montgomery here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast.
1: It's good to be here. Thank you. It's a nice-looking place you're in there. You know what? This is uh, this is kind of funny. I'm actually in my fiance's parents' basement, <laughs> and uh, so I'm actually I'm making a transition from New York to LA right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just bought this console you see behind me, so I'm uh, I couldn't store it in New York, so they were kind enough to let me store it in their basement, and I've set up a little mixed space, so I'm kind of working out here right now. <laughs> kind of funny so, but it, it's working you're in new york and you're going to transition to la exactly so i've been in new york for the past nine years it's kind of came time i'm I'm starting to get a lot more work offers out west so making the move it's kind of scary but kind of excited about it
0: well i can tell you that there's a uh, better weather
1: oh totally i mean honestly i grew up in scotland though so you know i don't think that's going to be an issue for me i'm uh i'm okay with seasons so tell me about that tell me about
0: scotland and growing up there and the musical or the the recording
1: influences that you had there well i mean i uh funnily enough it was my brother that kind of got me involved in this whole thing and he no he no longer works in music but um when i was maybe 14 15 he was running this small label out of glasgow called Podboy records and uh one day, I guess he was kind of, he was mixing front of house for these shows they were thrown in small clubs around Glasgow, and one day he couldn't make it, so he was like, hey, can you come at this club and mix this show? And I had very little knowledge in music, so I showed up, and there's, I guess it was a small Mackie mixer, and I'm just literally throwing up faders, trying to figure out you know what's going on, trying to get some sound coming out the speakers, and somehow I managed to pull the show off, it went well. And uh, so I started hanging out, ended up being like, this is cool. I kind of want to get involved in this. So I went to audio school. And uh, right after graduating, I don't know why, I've always had this fascination with New York. For some reason, it's just I've always kind of felt like there was a connection there. So I graduated when I was 21. And one night, just probably drunk, sitting on my computer, I was like, booked a flight to New York. I was like, I'm going to fly to New York next week see what happens. So I jumped on a flight and uh, my whole thing was literally just walking around doors, knocking on studio doors and just being like, hey man, give me a chance. Like I need you to sponsor me for a visa, which is a lot to ask, but I promise like I'll work my ass off. So I spent like six days just knocking on doors. And one day this uh, small studio in Queens was like, yeah man, we'll give you a shot. So I flew back home, did all the paperwork, they signed it three weeks later back in New York, and I've been there since, and that's nine years, so kind of worked out pretty well. But it's kind of crazy, actually, because I remember uh, I remember st- the day I landed in New York, I stepped off the plane. I was just so excited about the fact that I would landed this internship. I hadn't even thought about where I was going to live, what I was going to do. And I-, I remember stepping off the plane on my bags and just being like, shit, like where... Where'd I go now? So I ended up booking a week in a hostel, in a shared room hostel, because that's all I could afford at the time. And I I was like, all right, I need to find a place to live and I need to find a way to make money. So my whole thing was, I'm gonna find a bar job. So I'm walking around Greenwich Village, handing out resumes. And I happened to walk into the Bitter End, don't know if you know that place, down on Bleecker Street. And I spoke to Kenny, the owner, and I was like, hey man, I just need some bar work. Gave him my resume and he's like, we'll give you a call. So I leave and then an hour later the phone rings. Kenny, and he's like, Man, I didn't know you were an audio engineer. We need a front house engineer. Like, can you start tonight? And I was like, Are You kidding? <laughs> I ended That's up mixing incredible. there.
0: Yeah,
1: I ended up being there for seven years. So my whole thing was I was interning, you know, eight in the morning till five in the evening. And then uh, jumping over at the bitter end, mixing there five till like three in the morning sleeping a few hours and just doing that on repeat for for months. That is
0: that story just in itself of you handing the resume just to get some bar work and getting a call back for yeah. front of house.
1: And honestly that's kind of I mean that's where I cut my teeth. I ended up spending a long time behind that desk just mixing every night. And those guys are hardcore. I mean they put on seven bands a night and it's like 15 minute changeovers i mean it's a hard graft you know you end up working pretty hard there so it was a it was a cool thing to jump into straight away and just kind of get settled into and honestly like i landed that gig that day and i was like all right now i can afford a place to live so i moved out of the hostel got an apartment you know well a room in an apartment and everything just kind of fell into place but unfortunately the studio that i had moved to the us to intern at which was a place in Queens called the Wild Arctic. I'd been there like 6 7 months and those guys were like, "Dude, we're uh we're closing down." My whole visa depended on me working in that place. So I was just like, "Oh shit." So I just started as I do, and it's kind of it's partly why I'm on this podcast. My whole thing's always been just ask, just go and knock doors and just be like, "Hey, I'm willing to do this." So uh Started knocking doors again and landed at Dubway Studios, which I've been at for the past nine years. Just kind of worked my way from intern up to, you know, one of the chief engineers there. So, made that transition and uh, everything worked out well. Can you talk on
0: um, the details of the visa and how that works? So, if somebody uh, outside of the U.S. is considering pulling a similar move, could you explain that process?
1: Totally. Um, So... I used a company called Inter Exchange, which was, I didn't know anything about them, it was honestly just a Google thing, I was just like, I know I want to do this, and I, I ended up with a J1 visa, which is basically an intern visa, so that allows you to be in the country for up to 18 months interning, but you're not allowed to make money, Like it's basically you're you're here for purely work experience, but you're not paid, that's the whole thing. So, I mean, I hope I'm not going to get into trouble for this, but this is partly why I ended up looking for bar work because it's cash in hand. And I was like, I can't be on the books anywhere, you know? And so it was, uh, so I had a, I had 18 months. I just had to, you know, kind of make that work. But after the end of that J1 visa, I was then able to apply for like a work visa. And a lot of... Uh, I mean, we can get to this, but a lot of the, the gigs that Dubway ended up throwing me were kind of higher profile clients. And having those names on your resume was what enabled me to end up applying for like an artist visa. And it just kind of snowballed from there. But yeah, I started out on a J1 through an exchange.
0: If the U.S. business is sponsoring you, uh, is there a cost involved to that business?
1: I mean, this is this is a, a, a minute back, but uh, I think... The cost on their end was about $2,000. So they had to pay $2,000 in order to sponsor me. But I wasn't going to be the guy who's walking in the studio and being like, hey, I need you to sponsor me. I need you to sign all these forms and pay two grand. So I just was like, here's two grand. Like the check has to come from them. So that's kind of honestly for me, that was a small price to pay for. 18 months of experience in a studio and i was always on the understanding like hey this is short-lived like you're gonna be here for 18 months then you're going home so i was just i just lived in the studio like any minute i could be there i was like you're just gonna soak this up did you cover that for the studio that
0: went went under exactly oh
1: i still keep in touch with both the owners and uh it was a guy called Sean Kim and Dean Balalonus, and Dean actually reopened the studio. I believe I haven't been there. I'm trying to get up to check it out, but I believe he's up in uh, Boston somewhere or close to Boston. So uh, he's doing really well. I'm going to go up there and check it out eventually. Hmm.
0: Interesting. Wow. So then, um, you go to Dubway Studios.
1: Go to Dubway. Yeah.
0: Tell me about the experiences there.
1: Dubway is a man. It's an interesting place in the sense that. It's it's been around for a long time actually. So they were originally they started in the music building, mm-hmm. Manhattan, and then by the time I joined they'd moved to a location in Chelsea, twenty-sixth street. And uh, we recently, you know, four or five years ago made a move down to of all places the financial district. So we're just like a few blocks south of Wall Street. But two things that W has taught me, and I think the reason why they're still around and they're doing really well is they're the guys just say yes to everything so it's like something comes their way they're like yep we'll do it and then they figure out later so they do music they do post-production they do location sound absolutely everything they're just all over the map and it's kind of funny like i remember um a few years ago al the owner of dubway he's like hey man i think i'm gonna get this uh this field recorder right? like a bunch of lav mics and a boom mic he's like you know think there's a market for this and i was like cool cool i was like i know nothing about that but sounds good and uh he was like yeah we're uh you have a you have a gig with discovery channel shooting a documentary next week <laughs> i was like did people go to school for four years for this stuff like so i'm running around the financial district with interns just like booming them like just uh trying to figure this out walking around the city just like all right well we'll make this happen and flew to Canada, shot this documentary and I'm literally on set, pulling my phone out of my pocket, like, googling like, uh, what, the, you know, the, the directors asking if I'm sending time code to camera and I'm like, am I? I don't know. And I'm like, figuring it out and I'm like, oh, now I am. Okay, we're good there. And, uh, <laughs> so a few weeks later, get another call for another location thing and, you know, I've been doing that now for four or five years, bunch of feature films, documentaries and that's kind of how w operates they're just like all right something new's on board let's do it and figure it out and so i think that's partly why i i stay consistently really busy because i you know i do live sound i do studio i do location recording broadcast so (laughs) they kind of have a finger in every pie but it was a it was a very cool place to come up in. there was always something going on and i'm still there
0: I mean, it's very easy to say yes to everything, but what's difficult, I find, is to figure out what not to say yes to and how to navigate the finances with the different projects. Because you could spend all your time on low-dollar low, low dollar projects and, and find yourself at the end of the month not paying the rent. How do you navigate that?
1: You know, I think there was a time early on in my career where, like you said, I was saying yes to everything every single project that came my way and yeah i would end up spending you know i would end up working crazy hours in a week and walking away with not so much money and at the time i was putting it down to experience and i was like you know what like this is this is going to be worth it in the long run and fortunately i've got to the point now where i can turn down certain projects and I'm I'm in a position now where I can kind of be a little bit more picky and choosy about what I tend to to work on. But honestly, I never ever had a problem saying yes to everything. I was I was just happy to to be working and to be kind of immersed in this this whole thing. And I, I'm truly of the mindset that even if I'm having the worst day and I'm not being paid well if I learn one thing if I pick up one bit of knowledge that day I'm happy to be like that's gonna it's gonna help me out some way in the future so it was never that much of an issue for me but I'm I'm in a place now where I can be I can take a few more hours for myself and be a little bit more comfortable which is which is nice You've been
0: spending a lot of time on the road, is that right?
1: I literally six days ago got back from a year and a half sporadic on the road. Yeah. So uh it's a funny story. I think since since working at the bitter end all those years ago, I've had many offers to, you know, go on the road for small tours and I've taken a few. i I'd, I'd done a tour with a a band called The Veils. It was my first time kind of traveling around the country. That was maybe four or five years ago. And uh about a year and a half ago I got a call from a guy called Craig Meyer tour manager with a uh, Rachel Platten and at the time I had no idea who Rachel was and he was like hey we've we've just landed this three week tour opening up for Kobe Collet and Christina Perry and uh you know we're we're just looking for someone your name was thrown in a hat like how'd you feel about this and I was like all right three weeks I was like I can commit to that this could be fun like Let's do it. So I called up Dubway. I was like, hey, I'm jumping on the road for three weeks. Kind of cancelled all my sessions. And during those three weeks, Rachel's single went to number one in the UK, number one hot AC in the States. And she just kind of, her song was called Fight Song and it kind of just blew up. And so I don't know if you know that, that song or kind of unavoidable.
0: Yeah, it is unavoidable cuz I mean like I hear it on commercials and in bars and uh, it's every and you know political campaigns uh using it. So it's that song is everywhere.
1: So they, the 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 tour ended with Kobe Clay and uh Rachel and her management had a conversation with me and they're like, "Hey, this seems to be kind of growing and growing on board to stay a bit longer." And I was like Sure. I was like, I have to have a conversation because I, I have a job back home, but let, let me figure it out. So I spoke to Dubway and I was like, hey, this seems cool. And, you know, I tried to involve Dubway. We ended up doing a bunch of rehearsals there prior to like her headline tour. We used like the, the A room up at Dubway. Yeah. So a year and a half later, I just literally finished my last show six days ago. We played uh, Times Square for uh, for the ball drop right after Mariah oh uh, yeah <laughs> yeah and i mean it's been it's been amazing i got to go to continents that i never thought I would travel we we did some international stuff and it was a blast but i'm now after buying this guy, this console and i'm kind of uh, it was an awkward decision but i made the decision to kind of Get back to kind of what I wanted to do, which is more studio stuff. So that was going to be
0: my next question because you mentioned your fiance, and I wanted to, you know, discuss mm. being on the road and having a relationship. That's totally, a, that's a challenge.
1: Man, it was tough, and uh, I hope she uh, she's a, she can probably hear me. She's a way. Uh It it was challenging for sure. Um, the, the whole thing was. I guess like she was totally down with the 3 week thing which is nothing she's like go and yourself and then you know obviously I I definitely had conversations with her and I was like this looks like it's going to grow into a bigger thing and uh we definitely had a lot of moments I mean if I'm to be completely truthful we had a lot of moments where it was t- it was really tough and, and you know I was maybe coming home a day a month, 2 days a month and those 2 days it was just a lot of conversations about this is this sucks and this is difficult you know so I think there came a point where I had to make a conscious effort to fly her out a lot more take her to a lot more shows and you know it's tough I mean I'm I'm we were working sometimes like 14 15 hour days so even just trying to find time to like make a call you know like we would have two shows a day and I would be in sound check, and there's a lot of times where you just can't speak. So I had to really just make a, a conscious effort to be like, hey, I need to step away for a minute. And then of course I started flying her out more and we got through it, but it was, it's it's a crazy lifestyle and honestly, live sound, I've always said this, this is something my dad always laughs about, is that I've never ever wanted to be a front house engineer. Like I, I've never really been interested in live but it's something the, the funny thing is I quit the Bitter End three weeks before the Rachel Blanton tour because I was like I need to focus on my studio career I was like so I quit the Bitter End I was like I'm going to go to Dubway and I'm just going to start mixing a lot more records then the Rachel call came like a few weeks later and I was like oh man I was like this thing just keeps following me and uh, and uh of course I should count myself lucky it's cool I'm getting work but uh I think she's happy to have me back, you know, and, oh, and I'm going to spend, it's, but it's kind of funny because uh, I, I've been home for like six days off tour and I've spent my whole time like setting up this console and I'm super stoked because this is the first time I, I literally just got this like a few days ago. So I'm like, a, I've been down here wiring and like stained all this wood and whatever. She's just like, come on.
0: I know. <laughs> I know how it is. Well, and you're lucky because when I was in my twenties, in my uh, probably 24, 25 I remember uh, being in England and touring, and mm-hmm. recording, and um, communicating uh, with my my wife, my who's now my wife, but my girlfriend at the time. Sure. And uh, I remember when email first became like like available like everybody was using email and uh our front of house sound guy in the band I was in uh whose house I was staying at <clears throat> he's like hey I got this email thing um does your girlfriend have an email address at her new job <laughs> yeah I think she does and he's like oh we're well here <laughs> we could send her some emails you could stay in touch over email this is this new thing and I was like oh yeah let's do that because our phone bills were astronomical. Like, sure, I can imagine. Yeah, you know, crazy. like, you know, seven to $1,500 a month in phone yeah, bills. Yeah, yeah, And this <laughs> day and age, I mean, it's like, I'm sure you were texting a lot with, with your fiancé. Of course.
1: I, I think your email situation is text messages for me because I remember, like, the first time I ever sent a text. And I was like, what? This is crazy. But yeah, of course, <laughs> we were. Do you know what we used to do, actually, is a... Uh, I used to FaceTime her, and I used to put my phone up front. Of house. She watched pretty much every show on the whole tour, and she she like just knew the set. She knew the set better than me because I was always looking at the console, and uh, so the phone would always be in the front of house console. And she would watch all the shows, and she would put it on the TV. And she'd just, I would look down every now and then. She would just be sitting like eating her dinner, like just eating away, and like the gigs on in the background. But it, it was uh yeah. We tried to stay in touch however we could for sure.
0: Yeah, it's a bit of a challenge. What is your strategy here? Because I, and I, and I'm not trying to be a naysayer or, or doom you in any way, but live sound, Mm -hmm. you could go from gig to gig to gig and you could, you could sustain, you know, for quite a bit of time. Um, Do you have a business strategy for the studio plan here? I mean, you've had great, great luck and and you, and you really seem to be a go-getter. So, I'm
1: not approaching this thinking this is amazing I have this gear I'm going to open a studio it's going to be 100% success like I'm very aware of the current state of the industry and there's a lot of studios around me who are closing down and it's a shame so I'm trying to approach this carefully I wish I could speak to this more but I did have a, a meeting with someone last week who is potentially going to be a business partner and I can't really speak much about it but he- He's going to bring a lot of experience and a, a lot to the table that is way beyond my knowledge of of the industry and the studio world at this point. So there might be a, a pretty cool partnership there, which will definitely give me somewhat of a, a leg up, or at least a place to start, because I, I've never operated a studio before. I mean, I've definitely been mixing out home studios and mixing out of everywhere that I can can think of in New York, but this guy will hopefully take that to the next level. So that's going to be something we'll just we'll just have to wait and see how it turns out.
0: Leads me to my next question, and I think you could speak really effectively on this. You've benefited greatly from this concept. Talk to me about relationships of just you know networking and people you know. Like what what can you tell me about your experiences?
1: I have no problem with just reaching out to people and just putting myself out there. And it and it's it's one of those weird things where you know when it comes to maybe social media it's one of those things where it might be a little awkward and it's like hey I'm doing this and I'm throwing out a picture and I'm doing this but honestly I I truly believe that it's the world we live in today and that's kind of where people are looking and it's kind of so I everyone I meet I I try and make a connection with I always always just get everyone's number and whether a few days later I'll just send a text and they'll be like hey nice meeting you and weirdly enough all those relationships tend to lead to something whether people want to believe or not it does help so I'm very much for just putting yourself out there knocking on doors just asking just be forward and be like hey I want this and if it doesn't work out then it doesn't work out but that's kind of my thing. I just approach people and I'm just like, I want to do this. Do you want, will you let me do it? And if they say yes, then there goes the project and off we go, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it started when you came to New York and you started knocking on doors.
1: Yep, pretty much.
0: It, it really did. Tell me about your upbringing in terms of the things that you do now. Do you think that some of these practices in business like knocking on doors and such is that a product of your upbringing?
1: You know, I, I don't even know how to answer that, maybe. I didn't e have never gave it any thought. Oh. Um potentially. I mean my parents always encouraged me to to be a bit of a go-getter, you know? They were just always like the, the one thing the one thing that's cool, my dad always jokes. It's kind of funny. He's always like, Hey, when are you gonna get a proper job? But the one thing I know at his heart is he's He's all, he does tell me he's like I'm proud of you and he's always encouraged me to just be like hey if this is what you want to do then just go out there and and do it and just follow through and I don't know they always encouraged me to be confident and go speak to people and I've never really had an issue with uh just getting in people's faces and being like I want to work for you or I wanna I want to be part of this and uh still to this day like if I if I happen to see like documentary with a musician who's doing something cool or if I'm watching some YouTube video and I really love what someone's doing, I'll I'm the first guy to just be like, I'm gonna email that guy and I'm gonna be like, hey man, I want to record your next song or let me know if you need a mix. And I, I constantly, constantly just reach out to people all the time. And yeah, my parents are very social people, so it's probably something that was instilled in me from a young age.
0: That's what I was gonna ask because my parents are very social people. and mm-hmm. to this day. and my parents are um my dad is eighty seven. My mom's like eighty eighty one. and to this day, they're very social people, sure. and uh I think that has an effect. Uh, I, I do. Uh, and I don't know if this is if your parents are this way, but my dad, I'd, I'd when I'd go out with him into the world, you know, whether it's grocery shopping or running an errand, you know, just people coming up, oh, you know, Mister Boudreaux, you know, blah 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 blah, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, wow, my dad seems to know everybody. This is crazy, <laughs> and I think you know that influenced me growing up. So I, that's why I ask, how you know sure. your upbringing. All right. Chris Montgomery here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to take a sponsor break for a sec with Audio-Technica. Go back to the discussion of Nam again. I will be hanging out, of course, at the Audio-Technica booth off and on throughout the Nam weekend. So if you stop on by, you can see, of course, the loads of stuff that Audio-Technica sells. Of course, my favorite headphones, the ATH-M40Xs. And of course, the microphone that I use here on the show, the BP-40. Yeah, come on over and uh, Gary Boss will be there. Gary is... One of the main guys there at Audio Technica and very knowledgeable, very knowledgeable, is putting it lightly, about the Audio Technica line. Uh, Gary knows these products backwards and forwards. Come on over, I'll introduce you. You can have a discussion with Gary and he can tell you all about what is happening in the world of Audio Technica. And of course, if you're not going, uh, keep an eye out on the Audio Technica dot com page and you can uh, see, of course, any new announcements and uh, just check out any products that you might be thinking about investing in. Well, that's it. Let's get back into it with Chris Montgomery here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. <laughs> so once you get to Los Angeles, let's assume your your potential business partner situation uh, works out as planned. Um, mm-hmm. Is the idea just to stay involved in studio work?
1: Kind of. There's... Um... So since getting involved in the live world, I mean, feet deep in the live world over the past year and a half, there's a whole world of uh, production prior to touring that I didn't know about. So, I mean, I obviously knew there was rehearsals, but I I think a lot of... uh, a lot of bands now are are doing a lot of creative pre-production. So they're maybe integrating some sort of track elements into their set, which are, are taken from the record and there's, you know, obviously the visual creative and stuff. So I was lucky enough to to go through a lot of this process with Rachel where we were we were getting ready to do our headline tour or our TV show, wherever it may be. And we had a musical director come in and eventually there was a couple of companies that we would bring in who are based on the West coast who would literally sit in the middle of the room, have us have the band play down and be like, okay, this element here should be removed from the track. Like that's, you know, that's in the record and you're going to play this live. And there was a bunch of, there was a bunch of production stuff that I didn't really know that took place. And I've kind of, been taking a big interest in that and I've I've managed to build up a good rapport with some of these companies in the west coast so the idea is also to use our space as their pre-production spaces for touring and for a uh, for TV and stuff so I've I've managed to as I said like earlier I've managed to network with a bunch of these guys and I've mentioned to them hey I'm planning on opening this space and I want to make it large enough and I want to really kind of tapping at this market so i think as well as recording we're going to do a lot of a uh, pre-production for for television touring etc so there's there's a market there that i didn't even know existed prior to to being on the road with rachel
0: would you call these people consultants people that come in and sit and evaluate that situation
1: totally i mean i guess that's kind of the role so i mean i i, I would like to believe it's more personal than that but yeah that's I mean that's a word for for sure and it there's a, just a couple of dudes out west who have been working with Rachel and a couple of other bands that I've worked with over the past few years where they've been on the project so long they know the musicians inside and out and I think the, the pop world is a lot of people want to hear what they hear on the record and you're trying to find a balance between making it live because we all want to hear live musicians of course like I don't you know that's that's my main thing. I want to have people on stage. I don't have them playing live, but there's certain elements of the record that might unfortunately not be recreatable live, or it's very difficult to do. So, or there's budget restraints, or for any reason, and so you're trying to strike a balance between what are we what are we have not run off a laptop, what's on stage, and that process is a lot more involved than I might have thought. You know, and there's a lot of planning going and just building the playback rigs. I mean, like for Rachel, we had this two laptop redundancy playback rigs so if we were ever playing tv you know we just were confident one computer went down the other one clicks in there's zero time between it and there's a lot involved and these guys are doing like a bunch of really cool stuff like that that i kind of want to kind of tap into and and kind of pull that over to my space and have a home for them because right now most of these people that i know are just booking like rooms that you know, different rehearsal rooms are in the same. You know, I'd love to be like, hey, you can call this home. And I've worked with you, and you know me, and there's a space you can work in. So hmm. there's that aspect.
0: Do you think, based on your experience with that, it leads me to think that those of us who work on records should, even more so now and in the future, expect that the artists are going to need uh, immediate access to the files
1: you know what i think that's kind of i mean for me that's a no-brainer like every record i've personally been involved in recording or mixing for the past five six years i've just just as standard i've delivered tv mixes i've delivered the track minus vocal i've delivered like a bunch of stuff that if they need to use it for any reasons, there's like, you know, I usually print like a music stem, drum stem, per- percussion stem, bass stem, and effects stem. And I, I always give that. And I, I think more and more now that, uh, there's a lot of, uh, musicians playing to TV where they might need that sort of thing. It's just, it's just a no brainer to do it while I'm mixing. And and of course, like going back and doing that afterwards is always a nightmare. I mean, I try and mix on a hybrid of, analog and digital, and of course, I I make meticulous notes. Everything's always recallable, but it's it's something that I just do as standard, and I imagine a a lot of guys are doing that at this point. I'm a big
0: Studio One fan at this point, even after being a Pro Tools user for Mm -hmm. 20-plus years, and one thing that in Studio One I'll point out to everybody is that there's a feature in there where you can export stems in one shot, Like, you Mm -hmm. could say, uh, you can export individual tracks, or you could say, I'm going to take, you know, everything going through the drum bus and all the other buses, I'm going to take that and print that. It makes it so easy.
1: I I, I just listened to an episode of of your show last night, and uh, I honestly, I had never heard of Studio One, and I think I listened to the episode where, in the introduction, you talked about making the transition, And so I spent a bunch of time last night like just Googling Studio One and researching it. It it seems really cool. I mean, I'm going to have to delve in a bit deeper. But yeah, I mean, it makes your life so much easier. The one thing for me that's been a a huge thing is... uh, So I work a lot in a... I work for a bunch... Like I did uh, VH1 Unplugged for a long time and I, I still work on show for pbs and all these performances are, are pretty long we're talking like our performances and pro tools just in the last version or maybe the version before introduced offline bounce and i'm a paranoid guy so if i i'm working on a 90 set for for a 90 minute set for a tv show and every time i'm making a change I'm printing the whole ninety minutes. I don't like printing five minutes and stitching it. I don't know why. I just I'm like <laughs> I'm like if something gets thrown off by a few seconds and I lost sync. And uh so recently I've been using the offline bounce and I, I I'm weird like this. I bring two versions in, I flip them out of phase, I'm like, okay, it's totally cancelling. I can trust it and I'm I'm okay. But uh that's been a big thing for me because working on long sets like that is being able to print a mix in like 10 minutes as opposed to 90 minutes is is great. Let me ask you, how do you balance, you know, the time needs,
0: like some, you know, we're, sometimes we're rushed, you know, oh, we need this, you know, immediately is, is always mm-hmm. the, the mantra we hear from, from clients. I need this, I, I need this tomorrow. How do you balance those time pressures with your desire to have quality and to to combine those two?
1: I guess that's always an awkward balance. The one thing, and this is, I guess, like Kim, my fiance, would speak to this, but I, uh, man, if I need to stay at the studio till 7 a.m. to make sure it's right, I'll stay at the studio till 7 a.m. You know, it's just like, I don't... I don't like to deliver anything until until I'm 100% happy with it. And of course, I'm always always striving to be if there's a deadline, I'm going to meet that deadline and I'm I'm going to take every minute of my day to make sure that what I'm delivering I'm happy with and if that means not leaving for I would love to leave earlier, but if I if I can't, then I won't. It's an awkward balance, but I'm just willing to put in the time that speaks
0: volumes about your work ethic I think and Mm -hmm.
1: uh, that's cool you know a a very a very a a good example of this is uh, two months ago I was mixing um, an episode of uh, it's a show for PBS called Life in the Artist and it's one of the shows that I'm kind of involved in I'm very excited about and uh, we just did an episode with the Lumineers and so I was on tour with Rachel and I had two days I was in New York for two days and uh Al from Dubway called me up and he's like, hey man, like we just tracked this this episode Life from the artist stand, can you mix it? And I was like, All right, this this is the same thing I was talking about. It was a 90-minute set, 92-minute set. And I'm in town for two days, and I'm like, All right, and I I'm I trust everyone at Dubway. If I had to leave and someone else had to do a revisions, it would be fine, but the the thing with me is like for the uh for those live things i i'm just automation crazy because the artists then love to have the the crowd loud they love like a lot of tune a lot of crowd but of course i'm trying to find the balance of mixing this massive room and washing out my mix with keeping the mix up front and tight and and there's a crazy balance there so there's there's like EQs just sliding around like crazy throughout the set and there's automation all over the place and I bust things and I'm just like, I'm pretty paranoid that if I have to hand it off to someone else, I just want to make sure that they understand my process and it's printed correctly and whatever. So I mix the whole show on the first day. I deliver it and uh, so the second day is my day to do revisions and I'm waiting on the label, I'm waiting on PBS, all these people going back to me. Nothing happens on the second day. So I'm flying at midday the following day and I wake up at like 7 a.m. and I have uh, have revision notes and it's like, I mean, I don't know how this managed to happen, but in a 90-minute set, it was like, turn a kick during all my kick drum up to a db and a guitar up like a few db and one other song and I was like, this is great. So I grab all my cases. I'm like running to Dubway. I'm like in there at like eight in the morning trying to print all these mixes and then like the interns showing up for the day, opening the studio. And he was like, man, you need to get to the airport. And I was like, I'm almost there. And of course I'm like printing the thing down in real time. (laughs) So I print the whole set down, like listen back. And I'm like, all right, sweet. I did it. Like, I'm happy. I know it's done correctly. I don't have to worry about it. Fire off and then run to the airport. And it's like, those things just make me feel confident. 'Cause I, I just know what's done and it's done right and I'm and I'm happy, you know. And
0: you must be an adrenaline junkie. Cause that was <laughs> I don't know, man. My <laughs> adrenaline level just shot up, just you telling that story. <laughs> so you bought this console. What kind of console did you buy?
1: This is an Audience esp eighty twenty-four. It was shipped over from Germany. So it just arrived a few days ago in a crate. <laughs> it was pretty crazy and I, and I felt like such an ass because it was delivered to my fiance's parents' house and it came in a crate that was, you know, almost the size of their double garage. It was 800 pounds and uh, it's getting into winter, it's starting to snow here and I've got, you know, I'm making those guys park in the, in the street because I'm taking up their whole garage. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I'm like, I'm solo down here. All my buddies are back up in New York. So I ended up taking the console apart into like 40 pieces and carrying it downstairs, like piece by piece. I took out all the bays, took out all the meter bridges because I had no other way of getting it downstairs. And I'm finally left with just the shell. And that thing alone is like 300 pounds. I still had to hire a few guys to help me get the. To get the actual shell downstairs, but
0: oh my god, it's,
1: uh, I'm I'm loving it. I've uh, I've just been messing around for the past few days, and uh, I'm obviously on gear slots every time. I I was trying to figure out some stuff about this console. I was on there a few days, and uh, now that I have a mix space, people are hitting me up. There is a bunch of mixes coming in, so I'm just is it. So it's, it's a very weird transition because I've been mixing in New York for the past nine years, and now. Uh, I can sit here, look at the window, and there's trees and there's deer. There's deer running around at the back. And I'm just like, this is this is a trip, you know? So I'm I can step out the backyard and just kind of take a minute and it's very different from stepping outside the studio in New York. And uh Oh yeah. So I'm having I'm having a lot of fun and I'm kinda slowing down a little and taking my time with the mixes. And Dubway's a busy facility, so there's always a session coming in right after you so you're all i'm I'm kind of looking at the clock and i'm like oh there's someone else you know i can just step away from it's the first time i've ever owned a console or a or, or, or legit space where i'm really feeling so comfortable with everything that's at my hands so i can step away and take my time and come back after a two-hour coffee break and get back to it and it's a, it's a cool feeling so you got the console have you
0: been collecting any microphones along the way
1: yeah, I've uh I've been slowly just picking up things as I go. So I recently bought um a couple of microphones I've been wanting for a long time, which is a set of Cole's 4038s. So I'm super stoked on those. I have like a bunch of the standard stuff, like a D112, the whole sure thing. I uh, I'm trying to find a BK5A. I don't know if you know that, Mike. Yeah, RCA. Yep, the RCA BK5A. So that's kind of I'm on I'm on eBay right now, trying to source one of those. Um, I always like perusing the the classifieds on gear slats just because oh, there's
0: cool. it's just such a such a a hub for activity of selling.
1: Sure, I you know honestly I didn't even think to look there. I'll check that out. But yeah, there's a few small things that I'm trying to trying to get my hands on I'm a big fan of ribbons I love ribbons so I just picked up a set of a uh, cascade Fatheads and a, a Royer 121 so I'm slowly just kind of building up that collection and it's honestly I'm I'm picking up all the stuff that I'm comfortable working with in Dubway and then we'll branch out for there and see what happens. I could speak from
0: experience, but you should check out the AT forty eighty, which is a ribbon mic from Audio Technica. Fantastic!
1: I've been watching a bunch of the um, Strange Weather episodes recently, the Weather Vane, and they just had an Audio Technica episode, and I wonder if that's the mic they use because they use they use a mono overhead, and it was an Audio Technica mic, and it maybe whatever it was, it sounded killer. So I'll I'll definitely. Delve into that.
0: There's a couple of AT mics I'm a rabid fan of, and the 4080 is one of them, as well as the uh 4047.
1: Man, there's a lot of numbers involved in microphones. This is, <laughs> you know, what's so funny as well is you guys. I, I see you guys. I've been living in the states for ten years, but I think we see our numbers differently in the UK. Like we would say, I guess you guys say a four fourteen, yeah. And we would say a four one four. And this is an ongoing thing where I just say numbers differently. You say maybe a 121, and I say, I don't know. It's funny, every time I'm in a studio, and it's the weirdest thing because you ask an intern for a mic, and if you just say the numbers differently, they just get confused. And it's just because they're, they're it's just maybe it's my accent, or maybe it's just, it's, it's a weird thing. But yeah, there's a, there's a lot of numbers.
0: Coming from from Scotland and coming to the States, was it hard to get used to some things?
1: You know what? The hardest thing for me, honestly, was uh, I grew up in Glasgow. And uh, I mean, right now, I'm sure my dad might listen to this episode. and He's going to be like, you sound American. <laughs> and uh, when I moved to the States, I had a very heavy Glaswegian accent. And the hardest thing for me, especially starting that internship in, in the studio in Queens, was just trying to figure out how to slow down, you know, because Glaswegians talk fast, and we talk in a slang. So there was a there was a lot of just like trying to pace myself. But the the one thing the, the, this is such a weird story, but <laughs> like I remember my first day on the internship, uh, the uh, the chief engineer was like, "Hey man, can you run around at the store and grab some half and half?" And I was like, half what and half what? And like, you guys just have a lot of products that we do, just weird stuff. And I was like, I had no idea what he was talking about. So I'm like walking around the store and I'm like, I'm trying to find half something and half something else, but I don't know what I'm trying to find. And uh, I don't know, there's just all these tiny, there's these little weird things that are just day to day life for you guys. We don't have half, I, I still don't know what it is. It's half milk, half cream, I guess.
0: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you you an even weirder thing, and I swear to God, I Googled this the other day because uh, I bought some half-and-half because I like to put it in oatmeal. I love that we're
1: talking about half-and-half. We're talking about
0: half-and-half on (laughs) working-class audio. I put some half-and-half in my oatmeal, and I started to look at the container, and I thought, I wonder if this is a uniquely American thing and what they call it in other countries. So I Googled it, and a whole Wikipedia page on... Half and half in different countries, and what it means. And in America, it's it's a it's a dairy based thing, and also a liquor based thing. And mostly in Europe, it's uh it's like you know uh two kinds of beer or
1: yeah. Well, know, I mean, yeah, growing up in Scotland, that's, I'd be like, yeah, I can get you half scotch and half something else. That's totally cool.
0: It's ironic that you would even bring up half and half, as yeah, I literally funny. googled this a day or two ago
1: very funny yeah so there was a lot of weird just just small things that i had to i had to figure out you know and that's such a crazy stupid example but it's at the time like when i was you know i was 20 21 just trying to figure out a whole different way of living and of course i'd never lived in a city like new york so there was a lot of just like holy shit, this is different you know but now, I I call it home. I mean, for the next six months, I'll be bouncing back and forth, but I absolutely love it. Um, I'll be bummed to leave.
0: Do you ever see yourself going back to to Scotland?
1: You know what? I, I don't think I will ever live in the UK again. And it, it somewhat saddens me to say, but I feel like the quality of life in the US is, in my opinion, pretty incredible. And... For what I do, I feel like the market is just, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of engineers in the UK and London, but the market is so much smaller and, and it, it might seem a little tougher again. To and I've kind of landed on my feet in the US and I'm comfortable here. I'm very happy. So unfortunately, no, I think I'm pretty set here.
0: This is my own observations of, you know, living in the Bay Area since uh, late 1988, I've observed. Um I've seen story after story and I've witnessed it firsthand. Uh, I see a lot of uh, immigrants come to the us who just have I'll just say the eye of the tiger they come here, mm-hmm. they have a plan, they do it and they take advantage of what we have here and then I see fellow Americans who uh, are a little more lazy and you know they have every everything at their fingertips and yet they they don't take advantage of the opportunities.
1: I feel like I can speak somewhat well to this in the sense that I know that I I listened to an episode of your, your show recently where you're talking about internships and it's, it's a little bit of a weird world and it's strange, but the way when I, when I was here, I approached this opportunity. I had like, this is everything in my world right now. I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to throw everything I have at this and, it's weird because I was showing up to the studio every day, just stoked, excited to be there. And there was guys who like grew up like 10 miles away who were just like there, like, hey man, just like falling asleep on the sofa. And I'm just like, man, this is the greatest thing ever. Like, we get to hang out in a studio and we get to like just watch people make music. Like, how are you not like jumping up and down right now? This is this is amazing. And uh and I watched so many interns come and go who were like just like just not in it. I feel like when you're given this opportunity and you're in a place where you can experience this, like make the most of it, you know? So and I, I was also, as I said, I was working on the mindset that hey, I may have to go home and like the end of this J1 visa, so why not just throw everything at it? But yeah, I don't know. It, it it did occur to me as well. There's guys who, who grew up close by who wanna do the same thing, but their hearts just not in it. So I don't know.
0: It's pretty clear to me that you really exemplify that, you know, the immigrant story coming to the US and really uh kicking ass. I, I really um
1: Oh thank you. That's kind of you. It's
0: it's it's something that I'm keenly aware of and I'm constantly of looking at myself and thinking Am I doing everything I need to be doing and could be doing as someone who lives in this country, so
1: man, your track records pretty great I don't, I don't think you have to stress that
0: <laughs> well, I mean yeah you know, I don't know what I, sure yes i i I've done a lot and had a lot of great experiences, but I always look at others like yourself and I think, man, thinking of myself back you know like would I have done that Yeah.
1: But maybe you should head over to Scotland. Let me know how you gone. Yeah, yeah. Spend yeah. ten years there. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll go take the job that you would have had in Scotland. And- Man, you'll come back a master paper. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I and I won't know what half and half is. <laughs>
1: yeah. You forget.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, reaching out and and coming on the show and telling me of your stories. It's really really inspiring to to listen to stories like this for me, and I hope it is
1: for everybody else that listens. Thank you so much for having me, man. I appreciate it. Cheers. Have a good one.
0: Chris Montgomery here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. But we are at that time of the show, as you know, longtime listeners, we are out of time, of course. So we want to thank everybody. We want to thank Chris for coming on the show. We want to thank my crew, of course, Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams. We want to thank our sponsors, gearsluts.com Audio-Technica, Focal Monitors, and Universal Audio. We want to thank you, of course, for listening. Thanks for uh, taking the time out. And, uh, hey, tell a friend, right? Right? Spread it around. Other than that, take care.